have two readings today, uh, the first from Luke and the second from Colossians. The first reading is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 49, and it can be found on page 1644 of the Black Church Bibles. It will also be on the screen. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. 
The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The second reading is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through to chapter 2, verse 10, and it is on page 1,829 of the Black Church Bibles, if you are using them. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. Now, you'll need a Bible or something open, so if you haven't got one, put up your hand, and then the ushers, Phil, will be helpful. Just keep your hand up, and someone will bring you a Bible straight up. Okay, and while Phil runs around like that, the rest of us can pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that we can be here this morning. We praise you for being sovereign over our nation and for uh, guiding um, the whole election process uh, in the last 24 hours. And loving Father, we uh, pray for our nation and pray that righteousness and integrity and humility before you would prevail. We thank you now that we can come before you when we pray, mature us. Please help us to know Christ and to know him better. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, let's begin with Luke. Why hide who you are? Why keep the disciples from recognizing you? Why the games, Jesus? Uh, I love that story of what happens just after Easter when Jesus appears with two of his disciples 
on the road to Emmaus. But it's interesting, isn't it? He keeps himself from being recognized. Later on, at the end of the story, he reveals himself, and then the disciples realize, oh, it was you all along who was walking with me. And the puzzle in the story is, why on earth does he do that? You know, if Jesus was going to reveal himself anyway, why not do it straight away? Why keep them from seeing him? And then why play dumb about all the things that have been happening? You know, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about everything that's just been happening on the way to Jerusalem. You know, about all those things. What things? As if Jesus himself didn't know. You know, why play dumb about that? And of course, they talk to Jesus of Jesus, kind of comic, um, how he was a prophet from God, powerful in word and deed. Their hopes had been in him. But then he was handed over to death. And then weirdly, they'd had reports that the tomb was empty and news of angels who were saying that he was alive. And then you love Jesus' pastoral technique, don't you? (laughs) How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the the prophets say that the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then as they're walking along, he gives them this very long Bible study and he shows them through Moses and all the prophets, which means the whole Old Testament, how the whole lot has been pointing to him, saying that the Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory. And then, of course, when they get to the village, you know, Jesus acts like he's going further. And it's only when they say, hang on, do you want to have bread with us? He goes, oh, good idea. And then he (laughs) meets and has bread with them. And then it's only them that he opens their eyes and they're able to recognize him. And we think, why? Why Why the games? If you're going to reveal yourself anyway, why the games, Jesus? Now, we're not told why, uh, but we can guess. You find a hint in what the disciples didn't say when Jesus revealed himself. Have a look at verse 32, Luke chapter 24, verse 32, the Bible open. When Jesus disappeared from their sight, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when, now just hold on before you look at the end of that sentence, if you were one of the disciples and you were there then, what would you have said? You know, you've you've just seen Jesus, he's just revealed Jesus himself to you. You know that he's alive. Were not our hearts burning within us when you just made yourself known? I mean, imagine seeing Jesus resurrected. That would be exciting, right? That's not what they say. Were not our hearts burning within us when you talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Isn't that interesting? You know, we think, well, what would have happened if Jesus had revealed himself straight away on the road and then given them the long Bible study. My guess is that they would have been a bit dazzled by him and maybe not paid as much attention to the Bible study. My guess is that therefore he deliberately delayed revealing who he was so that he could give them a more substantial revelation of himself. Now, I say that carefully because wouldn't it have been substantial to have seen him? I mean, who wouldn't have wanted to see him? But we heard it from their own lips. Were not our hearts burning within us while he opened the scriptures to us? You see, what Jesus does is he gives them a legacy which will last way beyond seeing him at that moment. They'll be able to carry it with them. And then this is the key to keep setting their hearts aflame again and again and again 
down the track. And later, of, of course, Jesus um, gives the same revelation to the, all the, the 12. He tells them, everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opens their minds so that they can understand the scriptures. And he tells them, well, this is what was written you know, in the Old Testament. The Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and then repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You get that from the scriptures. Probably Isaiah, if you're wondering. All right. But do you see, therefore, what's next after Easter? We've been looking at this question in this series, saying, what are the hallmarks of a community of faith formed on the resurrection? And first off, when the disciples first saw Jesus, they worshipped him. Magnification. And then next sentence, Jesus then tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. Mission. Last week, we looked at the community of faith that was formed by the resurrection, a community that every Christian, every disciple of Jesus belongs to. Membership. But today, Jesus gives us another M. Maturity. Because what he gives the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then later in Jerusalem is a legacy that lasts long after he has ascended into heaven. He gives them the scriptures... I mean, they already had the scriptures, but he says the scriptures which point to him, he shows them how. And this is the foundation for maturity because they speak to us of Jesus. And you know, you know what, how it's like. When you see Jesus in the Old Testament so that you understand who he is and what he's won for you, that's what sets your heart aflame. Last Thursday, I was in a cafe with uh, three guys and we were reading Job for the first time any of them had seen it. And we read about the righteous sufferer, Job. And I said, who else is a righteous sufferer in the Bible? And one of them went, oh, Jesus. And suddenly he saw how all the wisdom of the Old Testament points to Jesus and helps us understand him better. It was like that little aha moment. And when you have those, you know, the beats of the jigsaw piece puzzle come together and suddenly we understand more of God's plan and more of where Jesus fits in and we become a little bit more grounded and a little bit more mature in our faith. And that's what we all need. We need to keep growing in maturity and having those moments. Okay, flick with me to Colossians chapter 1 now. We're going to go to one of the summary statements of the Apostle Paul in his ministry where he summarizes everything that he's about. Paul, of course, comes after Jesus has risen, ascended, and then poured out his Holy Spirit. So what he says will be slightly different given the pouring out of the Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, He proclaims Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, with the goal that on the last day he would present everyone perfect or mature, in Christ, it's the same word. Maturity is the goal of his ministry. He wants all believers to be presented mature. So that if you did liken the Christian life to a running race, he doesn't just want us to stagger over the line, gasping for breath, feeling weak. He wants us to finish the race in good shape. Um, in my teenage years, I used to run with my dad and my brother, the city, city to Surf in Sydney, which is a pretty gruelling uh, long-distance run, 15.7 k's, I think, uh, including a mile-long hill. 
which is really hard. It's called Heartbreak Hill. And um, there was one day when I was 16 years old, and I can't remember crossing the line. I know I did because my picture and my time was in the paper, you know, like you, you, you can see where you came. Um, but I can't remember crossing it. I just remember coming up to the line and an official pointing to me going, get him. And then I woke up in a tent in a bath of ice with a body temperature of 41. I didn't finish well. I literally staggered over the line and I can't remember. My mum wasn't very pleased. Dennis, what have you done to our son? Anyway, he got in big trouble. All right. On the day of Christ, Paul's aim is that none of us would have that experience, that we would all finish the race in good shape, strong, mature, running well. Like my friend Bruce. Now, Bruce was a guy I went to Bible college with. Bruce had a job in an Anglican church in Darwin uh, where he was um, employed to be a youth worker to Aboriginal people. And on Monday, I, on, online, I, I live-streamed into his Thanksgiving service because Bruce died. He's a year older than me. He's the first colleague to die. He left his wife and four teenage kids. And the thing was, he finished in good shape. Um, he came down for treatment uh, last year, we had him over for dinner, and he said, I've got the best job in the world. I love Aboriginal people, and I love youth work. And I thought, you're remarkable. Praise God for you. And then in the weeks leading up to his death, he kept posting online videos where he'd say, I'm so thankful that people who I'm visiting are keeping on maturing, uh, persevering in Jesus. I'm so thankful and I'm looking for every opportunity I can to speak of God's love for them in Jesus. I'm so thankful for the ministry opportunities I've still got. He was doing that two weeks ago. I thought he finished in good shape. I want to do that. I want to be like Bruce. Mature. Paul wants that for every one of us. And we need it because if we have it just a shallow faith, what will happen is we'll be vulnerable when our faith and hope come under threat. And this happened in Colossae. So in chapter 2, Paul says, I want you to know how hard, how strenuously I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who haven't met me personally. In the verse before, he's talking about this is a labor, a struggle, a strenuous work. He's really working hard for their maturity. He says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they can have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why does he tell us this? Look at verse 4. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Because you don't have to go along very far into the Christian life before you hear arguments, some very persuasive arguments, which might threaten to derail you if you are immature in your faith. Now, what sort of arguments are we talking about? Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. 
Now, what are we talking about in today's terms? Perhaps secular atheism. You know that presumption that Christians are just misguided fools, that there's no God, that we're stupid for believing in a creator or in miracles or in eternal life? You know that nagging sense that you get uh, on the media or you know, uni or wherever you are, that society just wants Christians to shut up and to go away? And of course it has its champions, doesn't it? Christopher Hitchens, he's now dead, but his voice is still alive. Or Philip Adams, educated, articulate people who've read more than we have and whose philosophy mocks the Christian faith. But it's not just atheistic philosophy which threatens our faith in Christ. Secondly, it's religion and religious practices, interestingly. Verse 16, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Some of us uh, can get converted out of very strict um, traditional religious backgrounds that pour scorn on being born again and make us think we're somehow deficient or lacking if we don't enter into all that religious ceremony, that practice, because it seems so rich, right? Well, then in verse 18, there's alternative spiritualities. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. You know, every so often you'll come across someone who seems very connected with a spiritual world which you can't see, with angels and demons, and they speak with knowledge on this. And then, I remember it happening to me, you, you can feel inadequate when you think, well, all I have is Jesus. Like you're missing out on the real deal. Or then there's worldly rules, verse 21. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. You know, if you want real power to truly transform your life, you just need to, you know, draw from within and do it. Be disciplined. So there's hollow and deceptive philosophies, there's religious practices, there's alternative spiritualities, there's worldly rules. Four sorts of fine-sounding arguments which tell us, either subtly or not so subtly, that we're lacking if all we've got is Christ. And we will encounter these. And you can imagine what it might do to a church if you had a group, a small group, who bought into them. You know, the enlightened group begins to look down on the rest, those who just had a simple faith, but oh, we moved on from there. They begin to perhaps separate a little bit. Unity is destroyed. Um, love grows cold as resentment builds. This undermines the unity of the spirit. So for us to keep persevering in unity and in hope and in faith and in love, we actually need everyone to be maturing together, growing in maturity. So how does it happen? What's the pathway to maturity? If you go back to Paul's modus operandi in chapter 1, verse 28, we discover something very big. Paul says there, he's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The pathway to maturity is given in three actions, proclaiming, admonishing, teaching. Proclaiming's the main one, but you'll do it with admonishment, which means warning, and also teaching with wisdom, and wisdom with an eye to God and to the context. So teaching that's applied, you see. But what does Paul proclaim? It's not a what, it's a who. Paul says he is the one we proclaim. Who's that? It's Christ. 
But look at how Christ is described, and this is the aha moment, right? Verse 25, Paul wants to present the word of God in all its fullness. Verse 26, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now disclosed to the Lord's people, which in verse 27 is Christ in you, not Christ out there, not just Christ, but Christ in you. What's he talking about? How is Christ in you? Through the Spirit, of course. When Jesus said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. What was he talking about? He was talking about the Spirit. But interestingly, Paul doesn't say the Spirit, not because he's anti-Spirit, but because the Spirit is Christ's Spirit. When we have the Spirit of God, we have Christ because the Spirit in us is Christ's Spirit in us. So that's who Paul proclaims, Christ in you. Now let's go further. The you there is plural, meaning Christ in each of you, because Christ's Spirit is given to every believer, but Paul also proclaims Christ in you collectively because the Spirit of Christ in each of us brings unity to the whole. And together, Christ in each of us and Christ, uh, the Spirit of Christ whom we collectively share together, this is what Paul says is the Word of God in all its fullness. This is what the Scriptures, the Old Testament, really is pointing to this reality. Because if you have Christ in us by his Spirit and we live in him, that is to have God in his fullness. Why? Because chapter 2 verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form so therefore, if Christ is fully God and we have the Spirit of Christ in us, then we have God. So you see what this means when any of us who have God, have the Spirit of Christ, encounter a threat which might derail our faith or hope. You know, if somehow any of us attempted to think, well, all I've got is Christ and therefore I'm deficient that would be completely wrong, wouldn't it? You can't get more of God through philosophy or religious practice or an alternate spirituality or a set of rules. Because if all of God's fullness dwells in Christ and Christ is in us, then God is in us. We have him. Which is why Paul describes Christ as Christ in you, the hope of glory. The whole point of the Old Testament was it was looking for the day when God would live in his people and they would be his people and God himself would be their God. And that day, because of Christ and the Spirit, has arrived. He is our hope of glory if you have the Lord. Glory is guaranteed. So what does therefore a mature Christian look like? Well, it's someone who knows that to have Christ makes them the richest person in the world. Someone who doesn't think of even looking somewhere to swap him for something else or somehow needing to top him up because he's not enough. He is 
He is enough. <laughs> He's everything. Someone who has spent time knowing the one whom they know, drilling deep in knowing him, not looking elsewhere, but looking to the one they have and knowing him better. Someone who's therefore content to rest in Christ and who's deeply thankful for who they have. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is the picture of a mature person. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's the mature Christian. They're not looking elsewhere. They are content to be in Christ, and they draw deeply on him. Paul's goal is that all of us would have the full riches of a complete understanding of knowing him. So when we hear of fine-sounding arguments, we'll now see them for what they are. Secular philosophy, it's hollow and deceptive. Now, I, I studied philosophy at uni, right, so I know about this. Philosophy doesn't answer any questions. It makes you more confused about the questions that you do have. That's generally true. I mean, you, you'll be clear in your confusion, but you'll be... It'll be complicated. Anyway, um, it's very limited in what it can say, but Christ teaches more about life and human freedom than human ph philosophies. Verse 11 to 15, tell us, if Christ is in you, then your identity is bound up with him. Christ has been buried and raised. We have been buried. We have been raised in him. And that says, Paul, Paul says, this gives us the key to life, which no philosophy will be able to give. Because having died and risen in him, we are transformed. We're forgiven, which means the law can't condemn us. It's been taken away, nailed to the cross. You don't need to live in fear of guilt. Moreover, we're not ruled by the flesh. The mastery of the sinful flesh has been cut off, broken. That's the little circumcision language there, right? <laughs> cut off. All right. Um, meaning you'll still battle with it, but it's not in control anymore. You've got the spiritual powers and authorities against us which have been disarmed and made a public spectacle of, meaning that it's Christ in us who has the answers to life. It's not the philosophies. Religious practices, secondly, rules about what we can and can't eat, religious festivals, verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. As for alternate spiritualities, those people who go into great detail about angels, things that they've seen supposedly but we've never seen. Chapter 2, verse 18, they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. In fact, in looking beyond Christ to angels, they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. If you move away from Christ, you've lost connection with the head. And of worldly rules, do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. Verse 23, these regulations have an appearance of wisdom, and they do, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they don't work. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I mean, New Year's resolutions, they don't work, do they? Because otherwise, why do you keep having to make them each year? I mean, if they worked, you wouldn't Need to, would you? They don't, they just don't work. All the scriptures point us towards exactly what we have. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now let's pull the threads. So Jesus said, he, sorry, he laid the foundation for maturity in the scriptures, pointing us 
to himself, setting our hearts on fire. Paul, now that the Spirit has been given, takes us one step further, that the fullness of the Scriptures that the Scriptures speak of is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So that if you've got him, there's no, no, one, no one else, nothing else you need except to know him better. And that's how you mature. So that brings us to think about how are we going to build a culture of maturity here? How do we help one another know Christ better? Well, there are lots of ideas, but let me give three very obvious things. The first is to turn up. Okay, attendance. Um, I can't help you mature if you're not here. And you can't help me mature if I don't come. I'll let you into a little secret. Sometimes I do um, write a sermon with a particular person in mind because I know they have a particular need. It's very disconcerting when they don't come. (laughs) I mean, God is sovereign and his spirit is powerful, so normally it hits someone else between the eyes. But, you know, you've got to be here to hear you know, um, um, I'm hoping that over the next year, our regularity of attendance can improve. Um, we do keep some stats on this, and, and it's true that our church actually is a little bit lower than the, the average for the other Trinity Network churches in terms of regularity of attendance. I think that's something we can work on and improve. I'd like to see you here more often, is what I'm saying, please. You know, like it'll be good for you and good for me. So just come. So they, okay, that, <laughs> all right. Um, it's more than that, isn't it? We have to lift the quality of our Bible teaching. Now, um, I work very hard at trying to communicate what the Bible says. Um, but I don't coast yet. I keep telling Mark, whom I'm encouraging this way, don't worry, the first 50 years are the hardest. In other words, it's a labour, but I'm jealous for your maturity, so I'm going to keep working really hard. So you can help me, right? Um, If you think it didn't work, (laughs) you know, like give me feedback. I want to know because I want to get better. And I want to get better at understanding the scriptures and making them clear to you and applying them in your life. Um... This last year has seen some drop in in our home group attendance in preference for other learning options. And I know that this partly reflects my need to better train the leaders and provide better resources for home groups and also provide other teaching moments, um, which we do have some. So we had men's convention, which was excellent. Um, Grace Women's Conference next week, fantastic. The regional conference in June, like, just be there. It's going to be really good. Um, But I know there's much we can do to to sort of lift the quality of biblical education here. Each Sunday, here's my aim. My aim is that I want everyone to leave here feeling deeply fed by the Scriptures. I I want everyone to think that they are richer for knowing Christ when they walk out. And if I send you to sleep or make you think, I didn't understand that, then I, I personally feel I have dishonoured God because I have taken something so rich and wholesome 
and failed to serve it up. Um, but I need you to listen and to work with me. And so therefore, thinking ahead would be great. My hope is that not only can home groups study in advance the passage leading up to what we cover on Sundays, but also that I'll get to the point where I can put out daily devotional stuff as well, which also help getting us prepared for Sunday. I know that's something I've got to work on, right? So I've got goals for the next year to help us grow in maturity. But it's not all me, thirdly, it's all of us, because Christ is in us together. Maturity means all of us encouraging, chapter 2, verse 6 of Colossians, that just as we received Christ Jesus as Lord, we will continue to live our lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Now this, therefore, is the goal for everyone, to encourage one another like this. We can each do this. And that would be building a culture of maturity. And you know, it's not just that we should pay casual lip service to this. Paul says he strenuously contends for it. This is something all of us need to actually work at, to labour in, because the goal is worth it. The goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is that each of us on the day of Christ would arrive in good shape. No one has dropped out of the race and no one just barely you know, crawls over the line. We finish in good shape. That is the goal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our church brothers and sisters who we can run the race with. Thank you for the scriptures pointing us to Christ. Thank you for the spirit, Christ in us, who is our hope of glory, the word of God in all its fullness. Loving Father, help us not to move aside from Christ, but to live in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we were taught overflowing with thankfulness. May this be true for every one of us increasingly, increasingly this year. In Jesus' name, amen.